0: Time for another edition of the Progressive Rugby League Book Club, and today we're talking The Big O. Progressive Rugby League. G'day folks, John o. Duncan. Rugby league legends are often defined by statistics. Games played, premierships won, individual honours accumulated. But there are exceptions to every rule, and in today's edition of the PRL Book Club, we're talking about surely the most fascinating. Olsen Filipina is a colossal figure in New Zealand rugby league, and while his stats in the New South Wales rugby league competition don't scream greatness, just over 100 games played and no finals appearances to speak of, Olson Filipina's story shows legends are not all formed with the same old ingredients. Today on the PRL Book Club, we're discussing The Big O, The Life and Times of olsen Filipina, Pacific Revolution Pioneer by Patrick Skeen. The Big O tells the story of the Kiwi great of Māori and Samoan heritage from his early days in Auckland's famous sporting hothouse Mangere East, to his conquering of the domestic game in New Zealand, his move to Sydney and his rollercoaster ride through the cut-and-thrust world of New South Wales Rugby League in the 1980s. The Big O tells Olsen's story in the context of a changing world. The monocultural conservatism dominant in the 70s and 80s was being challenged by a new colourful wave with a different approach. And in Rugby League, Olsen was the unlikely flag-bearer on both sides of the Tasman. Lauded for his skill, power and creativity, Olsen was the great entertainer, in Auckland, the capital of Polynesia, he was king, but in the rigid white working-class world of Sydney Rugby League, he was the square peg in a sea of round holes and consequently an easy target. In caught between the chalk and cheese realities of New Zealand and Australian Rugby League, Olsen took refuge in the international game and what transpired was a series of memorable performances which would define his career and cement his place as a titan of international rugby league. Olsen's story is one of pride, quiet defiance and self-sacrifice. He was a man of his people and his experience helped break down the door for generations of Pacifica to not only ply their trade in Australian Rugby League, but to be accepted and embraced in doing so. We're so thrilled to feature Olson's story today and equally thrilled to have the author of The Big O on the line, Patrick Skeen, Welcome to the Progressive Rugby League podcast, and congratulations on a fabulous book.
1: Thank you, Jono, and a warm uh, coronavirus welcome to all of your listeners. And so thrilled to be talking my favourite topic, The Big O, and I'm going to just let the listeners know that the book release has been delayed until June, but Mm Olsen's going to come out the other side of it with uh, pace and authority, and we're going to have a big celebration on the other side of a, a great man of rugby league.
0: Can't wait. So, Patrick, can you start off by telling us a bit about how the book came about?
1: It was, uh, it was an interesting journey and, and I can say that the book chose me in many ways. I was writing a short stories for The Guardian Australia and my plan was to write 20 short stories and whichever one went viral or was the, the highest achiever as far as hits and reach, I would do a book oh. and wrote a whole lot of interesting stories. One on Ian Roberts went really well. There was another one, the first Aboriginal and Asian Wallaby, Aboriginal Punjabi, guy from I'm on, on the board of Queensland. He was the first Wallaby in 1938. He had an amazing story where he was building the Thai Burma Railway, was in a coal mine under uh, Nagasaki when it got bombed, and just an amazing story. Mm. Steve Merrick, another guy who was basically the last amateur in rugby union, that story went really well. But Olsen was one of the highest-ranked stories in The Guardian that year. And a friend of mine who's a Garbo said, uh, Olsen's still working the bins. And I thought, wow, what? That's a long time. And Olsen, (laughs) Philip, I haven't heard that name for a while. And whatever happened to to the big O? So... I got sorted out with an interview and it just went wild on Facebook and went uh, through New Zealand and I got a lot of calls from people and people were you know, really thrilled that I told the story. And then I got approached by a publisher, University of Queensland Press, who said, expand this story, which I did. And then halfway through expanding the story, University of Queensland Press said, we're actually more interested in the cultural shift, the Pacific Revolution, than Olsen. Mm. So we had this sort of, uh, we had to stare each other down for a while, and Olsen is 50-50 partners with me in the book. Okay. So I couldn't report back to Olsen that, hey, hey, by the way, we're going to feature you as one of 10 pioneers on this journey from 0% to to 48% Pacific and Maori representation. So... Then I spoke to Richard Becht, who's a, a legendary Kiwi author. He's the media manager for the Warriors and the Kiwis, and he was—he's been writing rugby league since Olsen first started back in 1975, seventy-six. Mm. So he remembers Olsen, and he said, "There's a guy called Warren Adler from Upstart Press, and they've been involved with over 300 sports bios in New Zealand." So I pitched into him, and he said, "Yeah, Olsen was a personal hero of mine." Wow. So it went from being an Australian book with a little New Zealand market to a New Zealand book where the majority of books are. Over in New Zealand, and you know we've got some coming across to to Australia as well. And for me, it's uh, it's the joining of two jigsaw pieces. People in Australia have no idea uh, who Olsen was before he catapulted into the New South Wales Rugby League at the age of 23. So he joined quite late, mm. and people in New Zealand have no idea what happened when their superhero, the biggest hero of rugby league in the the 70s, mm. left in 1980 and just kind of disappeared because there wasn't the TV early and mm. uh, people just heard whispers and you know they used to have to pay 10 bucks for an old tattered copy of uh, Rugby League Week or Big League. Mm. So it's educating both sides and, and hopefully putting this together. And I always thought, I'd, it never sat well with me, the narrative that Olsen was an underachiever in the New South Wales Rugby League because my grandmother used to live in lilyfield so i used to wander down to the tigers and i was actually a tigers fan up to the age of 13 until yeah. a pub in Wagga, i ran into steve mortimer and he, he spoke to me for half an <laughs> hour at a pub as a 13 year old and I, it was like it's the power of rugby league when you actually meet your stars it's almost overwhelming and mm. the fact he gave me so much time i, I became a bulldog after that wow. but my uh, initial i was initially a, a tiger and i remember going down to leichhardt and seeing this amazing guy and and, and hearing him get racially abused was the first time i'd ever heard it and I grew up Mm. in a relatively tough working class suburb called Macquarie Fields but I'd never heard racism out there, everyone was kind of just down on the green space doing their thing and then I went out there and I heard this and it was just like one of those moments you never forget, it was almost like I'd been hit in the head, the noise and the, the horror and I remember asking my father what do all these words mean and he explained it to me and I thought he went through a lot of stuff and Mm. he seems to have been suffocated under this narrative of the enigma Mm. so i thought while i'm writing this book i'll actually decode that and deconstruct it and find is there anything more to that so there was a a mystery to solve as well because it didn't gel didn't dovetail with what i'd seen well i'd just seen him destroy defenses for balmain and and i just thought you know i'll I'll get to the bottom of this and, and actually build an evidence base and see if he was as bad as people remember and then i discovered a whole range of things and one of them was that when he was getting dropped it was often for behavior and clashing with the coach uh, rather than his playing ability. So Mm. that was a real lightning bolt insight for
0: me. And we'll get through Olsen's story as we go along. But first up, I mentioned in the intro that Olsen's high-level career numbers in his seven, eight years in the New South Wales Rugby League competition are in some ways unremarkable, as you say. Can you give us a sense of why we should look deeper than the superficial stats to judge Olsen's status in the game? In your mind, what makes Olsen a legend of Rugby League?
1: What makes him a legend of Rugby League, for one, is how his peers spoke about him and ultimately your opponents and I spoke to a lot of guys Mick Cronin and Brad Izard and Terry Lamb, Chris Close and they all say Olsen was the hardest if not one of the hardest players to contain and a player they feared and a player they all all planned for Mm. and he was also an incredibly unselfish player and there's a lot of guys in the book talk about they would just follow Olsen around, Wayne Wiggum at Balmain, Scored 16 tries and Olsen set them all up. Mm. And we, we don't have assists. We don't have, it's starting to develop that. But we really don't have that developed like basketball where it's attributed to someone that attracted three defenders and managed to get the ball loose. Mm. So that, that, that's not tracked. But he's also, for mine, a legend that he appeared right on the cusp when the, the great amateur game that we loved was ending where players worked mm. a second job and were of us and among us. And this professional data-led era of professionalism came in. And because he was the last of the guys that hated training and used to skip road runs and and really wasn't into it, because he's doing a garbage shift, lifting those heavy bins, metal bins, and throwing them in the truck from four to eight every morning, and he's sort of turning up in his Garbo gear and playing rugby league. So he's loved and admired by the players as a personality. As a player, I mean, in 1982, he won the, the player poll, the hardest player to tackle, and came third in the hardest hitters. Mm. And I think he's a legend because he never took it too seriously. In the world now where guys really struggle outside of rugby league, he was always a guy who believe those family and other things were as important, if not more important, than rugby league. And he just had this larger-than-life personality. And I haven't heard one person say a bad word about him. So the combination of of, of off and on field. Mm. And his stats are unremarkable because he also spent a lot of time in reserve grade because he was clashing with Mm. with the coach. So he just had an inconsistent, got moved around different positions. It was only when Graham Lowe really put him in at their 5.8th that we saw, wow, he's basically a 5.8th the whole time. Mm. But, you know, they put him on the wing. Frank Stanton played him in the second row at one stage and was like, he had just had an inconsistent, patchy run at first grade. And that's, you don't get to develop the combinations and, and what you would consider a great career. Make no mistake, he destroyed defences in Sydney, but he had a series of coaches that just weren't able to get the best out of him.
0: Mm. And as you say, he, he didn't spend all that time in reserve grade because of his performances. He had a high proportion of man of the match performances from reading your book as well.
1: I read every rugby league week and every big league from effectively 1978 to 1990, mm. and it was another thing. I challenge anyone to go and look at the match reports on a week by week basis, not to see that he's an overwhelmingly damaging and destructive player when he mm. was in first grade. And I think it was Brad Izzard in the book mentions that all the players used to get the big leagues on match day and just comb through them to see who they were who they were matching up against. Mm. And it was always with dread when he saw that Olsen had been named in first grade. It was always, always ruined his day.
0: <laughs> now, Patrick, Olsen burst onto the New Zealand Rugby League scene in the 1970s. Can you give us an insight into what New Zealand and more specifically Auckland was like during that decade and the role rugby league played for the Māori and Pacific Islander community?
1: New Zealand was a a country in transition. It had been really one of the most monocultural places in the world. It had been basically an offshoot of Scotland and, and England, very, very much tied in there. And remarkably, we only had our first trade agreement with Zealand in 1983 mm. because New Zealand was just basically supplying Europe and, and England it was pivoted and, and oriented towards and we would come together with with New Zealand in some sporting but culturally they're much much closer to to England it was mm. a Dower Scottish colony where you know foot rock flats and the guy called Crump <laughs> where they really define themselves as provincial and they had a guy called Robert Muldoon who was like a, a John Howard who was really preserving the last of that New Zealand identity being white rural mm. rugby union playing. And in Auckland you have some social change happening. So you've got the Pacific Islanders being imported from Samoa and the Maori coming in from the country to share in this new economic miracle that's happening. And they're coming into the cities. They they don't have the same education levels. They're doing a lot of the blue-collar work and building and bouncing at pubs, and they're settled into to Auckland. They're working in the breweries, they're working in the meatworks, they're working in the factories, and they're rubbing shoulders with, with the white working-class community already in Auckland, which is the rugby league staple. So you've got a big Samoan guy come to work next year that maybe played a bit of rugby union in the brewery, and it's like, well, come down and play for my club. And all of a sudden, you've got this injection of well, reggae and, and fun and culture and guys are pulling out guitars in the rugby league clubs and the rugby league clubs became a, a little oasis because outside on the streets and, and in the community, Rob Muldoon was demonizing the Maori and Pacific community and once the New Zealand economy flowed they tried to deport and did deport a lot of Samoans back to Samoa. Mm. And those, a lot of those Samoans felt, well, we're not really New Zealanders. You're treating us like we're a weed to be, to be removed. So in this environment of distrust, you've got Rugby League bringing people together. And you've also got the people in South Auckland becomes the hotspot. It becomes this new Pacifica capital. All the Maldives, Samoans, Tongans are all coming in and creating this new cultural brown soup called Pacifica. Mm. And Rugby league sitting at the absolute heart and centre of getting these guys jobs from the Pacific Islands. And giving them a, a community and really integrating them into, into the New Zealand community like nothing
0: else. Mm. Now, Olsen played for a club called Mungeta East in the Fox Memorial Cup, the New Zealand domestic competition. That part of South Auckland produced an immense conveyor belt of league and union talent. Can you take us through some of those names and what was it about that part of the world that produced such great talent?
1: Well, it's about 16 square miles south of Auckland, and it basically housed Samoa Samoan Tongan. It's where the gangs, Black Power gangs and different gangs formed. And it was a very, very tough place. And sport became, much like basketball for the African-American community, sport became the way out for these guys. Mm-hmm. And for Mangere East, it was a new suburb that had been carved out of Chinese market gardens. And sport became the identity of the suburb. Now you've got Olsen, Jason Tamalolo, you've got Mark Hunt, Mm. you've got David Tua in boxing and MMA, You've got Joseph Parker, the new heavyweight title. You've got Frank Bunce. You've got, in all these hard contact sports, and they all came out of these tough games of Bull Rush. Bull Rush was the absolute thrilling game that the Polynesian and Maori kids would play every, every second they could, mm. And it was a very violent form of Bull Rush. And Olsen was the absolute king of... And, and so was Jonah Lomu after him. And it's funny, Olsen was Jonah Lomu's hero. Right. And when Jonah Lomu had his This Is Your Life uh, TV special in New Zealand, Olsen was the only rugby league player, and they flew Olsen across from, from Australia. Wow. Because in Bull Rush, General Loma always wanted to be Olsen. They used to call... Olsen's nickname over there was The Bump.
0: Yeah, yeah. So- I mean, I I played a bit of Bull Rush in primary school, and I don't remember it being <laughs> as intense as it sounds in the book, that's for sure. Now, Patrick, Olsen's father was sometimes violent towards his family, but in the absence of a healthy father-son relationship, there were some great father figures for him to lean on. One of them was Sir Peter Leach, more well-known to listeners as the Mad Butcher. What role did he play in Olsen's life? The Mad Butcher is a really incredible,
1: larger-than-life character. He you know, left school at 15. I think he did grave digging for a while, um, did a whole range of odd jobs, and finally got into moved from Wellington up to Auckland and got into the, the butcher game. So his very first shop, coincidentally, was a butcher shop in Mangere. Mm. And he was servicing the Pacific Island and and the Māori community that were there, which are are a very big meat-eating community. They've got big families, so the butchers are a very central part of that community, particularly for for big functions. Mm. And Olsen's mother used to walk in there, and Olsen tells the story that Peter Leach used to yell out, hey, here's Big Mama, and uh, they used to have banter back and forth, and Olsen said, I'm going to get him one day for what he said to my mummy. And then he started going in there on his own, and the Mad Butcher would throw him snacks and and feed him little sausages. And then they developed this relationship, so Olsen starts to play for to East, and the Mad Butcher basically becomes Olsen's personal sponsor in his youth playing days. Mm. So he pays for his boots, pays for his rego, gives him meat. Uh, if he made rep teams, because Olsen played reps all the time, he covers travel and accommodation and all the costs. And so Peter Leach goes on to run a, a national chain of butcher stores. I think it was over 100 stores at its peak, and he got bought out by venture capitalists and has become you know, this incredibly wealthy man. He's the patron of the Warriors. He was the patron of the New Zealand Kiwis. And he also became Mangra East's first sponsor back in the day. So they, they were sponsored by the Mad Butcher. Right. So he goes on from sponsoring Olsen personally to being a sponsor of the club. And interestingly, Olsen played for New Zealand Secondary Schools Rugby Union and New Zealand Secondary Schools Rugby League. He was the captain of the New Zealand National Schools team. So he's, there's a big fight for him. He's playing Union on the Saturday, League on the Sunday. And when Otago College, he went to Otago College, a big rugby union school, and they came to his house and approached his his family and said, we want Olsen to play rugby union full-time. And it was because of the mad butcher's investment in Olsen that Olsen's father said, no, we want him to play rugby league. Wow. And they believe he would have been a certain all-black with his heels. Joe Stanley in the book, the 27-test all-black, says he would have been a definite all-black. And it's amazing that just one man's influence actually kept Olsen in rugby league and allowed this whole story to unfold.
0: Mm, Mm-hmm. Now, while Olsen struggled with his relationship with his father, he surrounded himself with strong, intelligent women throughout his life. His mother, Sisse and his wife, Leslie, they were big influences and pillars of support for Olsen, weren't they?
1: I think if you look at the entire rugby league male community, you will see there's a huge female spine behind all their success because, Mm. as you referenced earlier, the, the Samoan fathers were... Basically, they're like monarchs. They were kings in Samoa, and they came down to New Zealand and had to work hard, and a lot of them were very strong in disciplining their children. And the young Pacifica and Māori boys would take refuge with their mother. And there's a joke that a lot of these players we see brutalising on the field are absolute mummies boys. And there's even one warrior that still sleeps in the same bedroom as his grandmother, Mm. and they don't even look at it as a bad thing or something to laugh about. It's like a really good family thing. So you've got these women that are behind... So Olsen's mother um, became his refuge and loved his mother very much. His mother was a Nāpui Māori from way up north in Kaikōhe from absolute warrior people. Mm. And she would relentlessly support Olsen and scream at referees. And there's one funny story of her chasing a referee (laughs) around the clubhouse after uh, one of the games. And when Olsen left New Zealand, he basically handed Olsen to his future partner and still-life partner, Leslie. So basically, he was handed from one woman to another Mm. to basically be his refuge because he went through a lot of stuff in Sydney and Leslie was there for him. Mm. And there's another lady called Margaret Drys who lives in Ryde and Olson lived with Margaret for the first two and a half years. And they're still best mates now They turn up to each other's birthdays So He had a surrogate mother uh, As such in Australia Mm. The Drys family From the Ride Eastwood Hawks Who Mm. were The Mangere East's Sister club relationships Through that sister club relationship Olsen got You know Basically a second set of parents Over here Who were Able to shield him From a lot of things And help him make some decisions Mm. And so there's always been a woman there, and I think you'll find if you expand that out, that's a very uh, salient key factor in the success of, you know, a the, the lot of them are, are mummies' boys, even though the father teaches them the game. Yeah, They spend a lot of time and, and are nurtured by grandma's sisters, mums, and his mother, sissy was fantastic, and Leslie is like a, a star of the story for, yeah, for just always being there and just this resilient sort of warrior woman.
0: Mm. Now, on the field, Olsen was carving it up in the Fox Memorial Cup he wasn't just a good player though. He was a genuine entertainer. For those of us who didn't get to see much of Olson play, what were his major traits as a player?
1: Olson was a prototype in many ways. He had the size of a big man, and he's—he's he's funny. We look at it now, but he was only five foot ten. Mm. But he had huge thighs, and he had the skills of a little man. Mm. wrapped in with the body of a big man so he was very fast off the mark and I heard different players say you know you didn't know if you went low on him he was difficult to tackle if you went high on him he could just brush you off so he just presented a handful his hits were simply unbelievable and we've got a lot of big hits going on now but he was definitely alongside Ron Hilditch Mm. the hit man he was the big hitter of the Sydney comp and there's footage online you can find of him just cutting Mitch Brennan into a very famous tackle (laughs) And Olsen lined up uh, Gary Jack one day in a Kiwis test, and he used to just use his unbelievable fire strength as power. He was also a very creative player in attack. He just didn't run over people. He had a beautiful little chip and chase. Mm. He would put grubbers in. He was able to offload balls like a very skillful, very similar to Arthur Beetson, the way he could tie up three players and still get the ball away. Mm. He would do back flick passes before their time. He had good covering defence but he could just come in and take the ball uh, off the forwards and just get guaranteed sort of Tamalolo-type meters. Mm. He also did it with a huge smile on his face. He absolutely loved it and was very, very infectious. And, and Wally Lewis mentions, you know, that smile used to uh, really bother him because you got this guy sort of stomping all over you, just looking like he's having a, a whale of a time. So he had a real joie de vivre about how he played, and I think people liked the fact that he was always looking to entertain. There was a bit of a difference while... Australian game was becoming quite robotic. The New Zealanders, because they didn't have poker machines over there to underwrite their game, they had to get the turnstiles going and, and play an entertaining form of the game. And he was the, the crowned king of the entertainers over there. When he was lost to the game in New Zealand and came across to Australia, it was like, who will replace Olsen? Yeah. They always used to put Munger East on the main event at Carlaw Park, knowing that Olsen would get two or three or 4,000 people in there mm. just to watch him play.
0: Amazing. Now, as you say, Olsen was the king in Auckland and New Zealand Rugby League. He then made his way over to Sydney to play his trade in the New South Wales Rugby League competition with the Balmain Tigers. But despite proving himself as a genuine match winner and he was the club's best and fairest in his first year, it didn't really work out for him at Balmain. Why was that?
1: There were a lot of factors. And one was that uh, in his first year, he had Dennis Tutty, And Dennis Tutty is for your rugby league listeners who would know him a, a revolutionary in the game as well he was the one who broke the stranglehold that clubs had over players and they could become free agents and he made his coaching debut in his first year and Dennis Tuddy got undermined and had a really rough year so Olsen's first introduction to the game although Dennis Tuddy actually had great cultural competence he'd been over to New Zealand a few times he used to go to New Zealand with Arthur Beetson to work in the freezing works and eat lots of Maori food and he used to go over there to put on weight. Really? So he actually understood Yeah, it's a weird tangent. So he really understood the Maori people. and He loved the Maori people, but Olsen only had him for one year and then he had, in his year two, he had a coach called Frank Stanton, who uh, was a disciplinarian and just Olson always felt he was getting worn out in training and wasn't the best trainer. Mm. And Frank was, uh, that they had a great clash of styles that really impacted Olson.
0: And so Patrick, was Frank Stanton, was he uniquely insensitive or robotic or just a product of the times and a conservative system, do you think?
1: It's a really interesting one because there are players like Steve Roach and Ben Elias who believe Frank Stanton you know, who went on to become greats of the game that mm. to Frank Stanton was absolutely responsible. He had a nickname called Cranky Frankie. So that means, you know, he's a gruff and he was seen as a gruff type of guy. Also said, you know, he could be very charming at times, but I don't think he was uniquely insensitive. I think there was a, a prevailing outside Jack Gibson and maybe Roy Masters there was the prevailing sentiment of coaches at the time was one size fits all. No yep. one gets treated special. Mm. I think you find exactly the opposite happens now. The players uh, There's an asset management approach to managing players mm. and some can handle a spray. Some get spoken to uh, quietly on their own. There's some Polynesians, if you abuse them in public, you'll never get the best out of that guy. He's, he's gone mm. then. So you got guys like Craig Bellamy that'll turn up to church and Graham Lowe, guys like that that mm. would uh, you know, really solve any problems the players had and get into their off-field life. Frank didn't care what happened and the coaches at the time didn't care. I think Frank was probably the greatest example of the hard, in- insensitive disciplinarian. And I think Olsen was perhaps the greatest example of the last of the free spirits who didn't care for training. He just wanted to play the game or at training, he just wanted to throw the ball around and not get into, there's always this comment, I'm training to run a marathon, not to play rugby league. Yeah. So I think you've just got this unique tectonic clash of two very different people, and they were very emblematic of the two, the old Anglo style and this new wave of sensitive Polynesians coming in, and those two were just at the the wrong place at the wrong time.
0: Now, we'll get to Graham Lowe in a moment, but an amazing part of Olsen's story in Sydney Rugby League is thinking about the sliding doors moments. The biggest has to be the moment Olsen knocked back an offer from Jack Gibson to join the Parramatta Eels for the 1982 season. Parramatta had just claimed the 1981 Premiership and were about to win the next two. I hate to play what ifs, but how do you think Olsen would have gone under the tutelage of Jack Gibson at Parramatta?
1: That's a fantastic question, and and it's interesting that people that have read the book They've pointed at that exact moment of, of what could have been. Mm-hmm. Now, Jack Gibson is the standout. He is the outlier. And, and I've really gone to great lengths to point out. And he was also Graham Lowe's mentor. Graham Lowe would call Jack Gibson on a range of things. And Jack was, he was really a different sort of guy. Mm-hmm. He really loved his players. He was a great man-manager. And he was the perfect guy. And he saw, and he openly spoke about this on a number of occasions, that he believes Olsen under him would have been... He would have been able to bring out the best of Olsen because he would have sensitively managed him and become that father figure that Frank Stanton couldn't be. Now, Olsen, whenever he had a father figure, he thrived. A second father, someone that really cared about him, gave him love. We didn't talk about love in rugby league back then, but it's something Graham Lowe openly talks about. He loved his players. And players really responded to that because there was no emotional outlets for Australian men back there Mm. in the 80s. They couldn't say that they loved each other and there was no vulnerability sessions like the players have today and Mm. mutual disclosure and the bonding. There was none of that. It was just all suck it up, harden up, and you didn't talk about those things. So Jack Gibson wins a premiership, tells Mick Cronin that he wants to get him over at Parramatta. Mick says, yeah, I'd much rather play with him than against him. Mm. Olsen's had a bad first year under Frank Stanton and felt, you know, he couldn't let the guys from Balmain down and knocks back, joining the Premier's Parramatta, playing under Jack Gibson and re signs with Frank Stanton at Balmain. And that's, Um, you know, Sliding Doors moment is the perfect way to to summarise that. It's just a sad thing we never got to know. But there's also an argument that with everything that Olsen went through, in many ways, it's made his story uh, of resilience and and rising up again and an even more powerful story. So it's, it's a really strange and weird thing, but he had to go through a lot to prove that Polynesians could stick it out and do the tough yards. But you definitely think he would have been an amazing part of that Parramatta back line just to come on as a, an impact player or, or, or be part of the starting group. And, mm. uh, Brett Kenny, now Wally Lewis, when he ranks the 5-8s he played against, he says Brett Kenny won and Olsen two, and they could have been playing next to each other. So yeah. it's amazing to think about.
0: Yeah. Now, Patrick, Rugby League, prides itself on being an inclusive game and is rightly proud of its history in that regard. It's always been a game for everyone. And we touched on this earlier, but it doesn't mean inclusion has come easy. Can you expand on what it was like for Olsen and players from Māori, Islander and Indigenous extraction, both in terms of the perspective of the Sydney crowds, which you mentioned before, but also from his playing cohort?
1: The 70s and 80s were a really unique time in Australia. We had the White Australia policy from 1901 to 1975. So
0: hmm.
1: Olson arrives in 1985, years out of the White Australian policy. So we've had really three generations of the Anglos being these un- unquestioned groups. The Italians came through and they copped it and the Aboriginals copped it all the way through. Uh, But Olsen was the first real visibly Polynesian guy to play in the New South Wales Rugby League. The Sorensen brothers were here and they're half Tongan. Mm -hmm. And Lloyd Martin was surprisingly had some Maori blood that no one knew about it, but they had Anglo names, very pale skin, and Olsen was. The first of, of, of something new. Now, Olson says they didn't know who a Polynesian was a lot of people called him an Aboriginal and the names, the, the negative names that were associated with that. And, and Olson was shocked at how Larry Cora were used to be able to absorb the racial abuse. And Larry would tell Olson, he's just grown up with it and, and he's used to it. Mm. But the, it was the, from the players and his, some of his teammates that Olsen really took it hard because he, he struggled with the, the crowd abuse. Mm. But when it came from players, and he doesn't name, he's got the rugby league code of not naming anyone, but mm. he does acknowledge that some of his own teammates said it. And Tony Kemp, who followed Olsen, played for Newcastle Night City, he had fistfights with his teammates who called mm. him racial names as well. I've spoken to quite a few of the players and they said it wasn't really known the damage they were doing back then. It was just something they knew they had on someone that they could put them off their game. They really Mm. were a bit sheepish for, for some of the things they said. But it devastated Olsen because he just couldn't understand why people could be so vindictive, and it was often shoving his head into the ground and sort of saying stuff into his ear in the tackle. Mm. And some of his coaches, because you could hear it openly, and, and there's a Balmain trainer called Les Hobbs. He said he could just see Olsen's body language slump mm. when they heard that someone had called him a name, and particularly make fun of his surname. And it's something I've I've realised over time. I mean, in, in Australia, we had Billy Birmingham have eight consecutive number one albums mocking people's surnames Mm. but the polynesians get so offended when you make fun of their surnames and people used to just call olsen names and ridicule his surname and that was for him like you're insulting his grandparents and his whole genetic line it was it was different i go into the book about there's been studies done that racism does impact people very differently than teasing about their weight or their height or their hair or whatever other physical characteristics race really strikes and is, is ruinous to people's mental health so the, the players had to go through a lot, I'm prepared to give a lot of the players the benefit of the doubt, they didn't really know the impact of their words and no one in the rugby league's ever come out and really said it but Dermot Brett set said an unbelievable example in the AFL where he came out and apologised 25 years later to Uh, aboriginal player that he had had vilified in the grand final and i thought that was you know really Mm. amazing but it hasn't happened in rugby league it's it's more of a that's water under the bridge and you'd be surprised some of the players that olsen mentioned to me said it's like a bit of a shock right they were sort of goody two-shoes guys but it was like a normal normal thing for players and fans to racially abuse and anyone that says that just wasn't there because i heard it you know a lot of times when i was a fan and I've heard a lot of players, you know, admit that it went on, but it was just, you know, they it was considered a, a very sort of sick form of gamesmanship at the time.
0: It's something that's often downplayed in Australia, but the New Zealanders interviewed in your book, including Peter Leach and Graham Lowe, they make it very clear that it was very, very bad stuff that would be unthinkable to be heard in New Zealand at the time, and it was from both the players and the city crowds, like you say. So. Olsen made his way to eastern suburbs in 1985 under Arthur Beetson, and despite high hopes the change of scene would be a positive, it was more of the same, a one-size-fits-all coach who didn't know how to get the best out of Olsen the individual. And this rollercoaster of match-winning performances, quieter games and long stints in reserve grade continued, and the treatment took its toll on his mental health, but something that did keep him sane was the International Rugby League. Being part of the Kiwi camp was his solace, a source of great comfort for him. He really enjoyed the environment and the approach of successive New Zealand coaches, which was in stark contrast to what he experienced in Sydney. One of those coaches, someone you focus on a fair bit in the book, was Graham Lowe. We spoke briefly about him before, but tell us a bit about him and why he was different.
1: He is arguably the most fascinating figure in rugby league from a coaching perspective. Mm. Um, Graham Lowe started and he, he didn't have much of a playing career as well. In New Zealand, it was pretty much all ex-players. then and, and, and ex-players thought, you know, why would I listen to someone that didn't really play at the highest level? I didn't think that attitude was quite quite prevalent in Australia as well. So he left school at 16, was an automotive mechanic and started in ninth grade, Odohu. And by the age of 31, he was coaching first grade, and was the first one to bring in three training sessions a week, and his team, Odahu, became the Parramatta of the late 70s in Auckland. Mm -hmm. And he rose so fast and was the first Kiwi coach to come across. He came across in 1980. And, and Brisbane North went across the coach in Brisbane and brought Mark Graham with him and brought another guy called Stan Napper, who's a Cook Islander, who is Dylan Napper's father. Mm. And they joined forces there. And Mark Murray and Greg Koneski were there. And he joined these Kiwis with the Aussies. And they went from absolute dead last to fifth. And then in 1980, they beat Wally Lewis and Mal Meninga on the way to the greatest upset in Australian Rugby League history. No one could ever thought Brisbane Norths could possibly beat the heavyweights, Wynnum and Brisbane Souths. Mm. And so from that uh, Brisbane uh, situation, he was picked to coach the Kiwis. And the Kiwis had lost 14 straight matches from 1971 to 1983. International Rugby League was dead. And he came in, he didn't have the scar tissue and all the, he found all the New Zealand players used to wear Winfield Cup jerseys to their games and they had this inferiority complex and he banned those jerseys. And he didn't have the scar tissue of losing game after game like Olsen had lost every match against the Kangaroos from 78. And in 1983, he, he was a meticulous planner and he knew that Australians had become so robotic in and, and what we call completions these days and they'd lost their flair that the old Kiwi style of entertainment might be able to bridge the Aussies. So he mm. pulled off a shock upset in 1983 and he just single-handedly got the New Zealand Rugby League going on the field and off the field all the sponsors suddenly came alive because mm. he was this slick unbelievable guru and he was able to do things with the kiwi players that the australian coaches couldn't do and they called him an alchemist a miracle worker and everyone was thinking who is this guy that didn't even play the game is able to get great performances from these guys
0: and he really understood the players didn't he like you said before he wasn't afraid to talk about loving yourself and loving one another which was really unfashionable back then Oh,
1: it's unbelievable, and the concept is called Aroha in New Zealand, and mm. they talk about it openly in Maori words. And he would go to their houses, he would meet their families, and there's a famous story in that Brisbane North one where Brisbane Norths got flogged, and he told all the players for their wives to drop them off in their cars, and they, were, they basically thought they were going for a 30, 30k road run, and they just took him down the pub and he got them drunk, and he just sort of second-guessed them. And they didn't lose a game then from, for the rest of the season. Right. So it was just, he was just—he was just a, a counter-cyclical guy. But he would fix player problems. He would go to jail and fish guys out. And he knew if he could find out what's your problem, same as Jack Gibson, what's your problem off the field? I'll fix whatever your problem is, but you have to run through walls for me on the field. Yeah. And he would just generate the level of gratitude and team bonding that made his teams unbeatable.
0: Now, Patrick, Olsen's Kiwi career was peppered with match-winning performances, but the highlight has to be the 1985 Trans-Tasman Series. Plucked out of eastern suburbs reserve grade, he was chosen to line up directly against the greatest player in the world, state of origin hero, and now immortal of the game, Wally Lewis. It turned out to be the definitive moment of his career. Can you give us a sense of how big that series was for New Zealand?
1: It was big. It had come at this really unique time In New Zealand history mm. From 1975 to 1984 Robert Muldoon had sort of terrorised The poor Maori and Pacific players And the working class New Zealanders And David Longey, Who was a New Zealand Bit of a Kevin 07 type character Had toppled Robert Muldoon And David Longey had grown up in Mangere mm-hmm. He was the member for Mangere He'd gone to Odahoo College just like Olsen And he was young, he was only 41 and interestingly, he had done three years as a lawyer doing Māori casework up in Olsen's hometown of Kaikohe. here. So he had a lived experience unlike any other New Zealand prime minister before him. And Olsen's brother Alf says that this is the first time we believe we had a Pacific prime minister. So you've got this tectonic cultural clash going on. And then for the first time, the New Zealand Kiwis are starting to match up against the All Blacks over there and media attention and love. So rugby league's finally come out of this... 100 years suffocation or 80 years suffocation at the hands of Rugby Union. Rugby Union had tried to stop league growing in schools, tried to pluck the talent they had, tried to, you know, systematically denied them uh, facilities, denied them airplay through the media, and they'd really tried to stop it growing. But come to this time, because this 1985 team was fearless, they were ready to take on the Aussies. They had six battle battle-hardened New South Wales Rugby League players. They were led by Graham Lowe, this unbelievable character who had torn it up for Norse. And and they had Kurt Sorensen in and out of reserve grade for Cronulla. But Graham Lowe knew Kurt Sorensen was a wizard and he knew that, that Olsen was way better than the Australian media was painting him. And it all came together in this 1985 series, which Ken Arthurson at the time billed, is the World Series. This series is it. England had been beaten by New Zealand 3-0 the year before. So this is New Zealand finally standing up to the bully. And both sides of the Tasman, people were excited because New Zealand hadn't been a threat until this series. But they were talking it up in the press. They were saying they were ready to challenge the Aussies. And it had a real Ali Frazier feel. The first time we'd had it in a long time for rugby league. And you know it was really the embryo of what we see now. New Zealand very, very competitive. They won some World Cups. This is where they drew a line in the sand And it wasn't just Olsen They had a junkyard dog called Kevin Tammity
0: That's right There's a famous moment in Was it the first test match? First first
1: test match in Brisbane Of that 85 test series
0: Against Greg Dowling wasn't it? Kevin Tammity hasn't lost
1: his sense of humour Or has he? She's on again Well it was always going to be on between these two But this Oh this is not good They should stop this in a hurry Hugh McGann going over to uh, try and break it Well, you know, uh, Kevin Tammity came out and said that Greg Dowling had uh, racially abused him uh, during the game and they were sent off for fighting. So right at the end, a French referee, uh, Ruskanier, uh, sent them both off and uh, walking off the ground and uh, Dowling said a few things and Kevin Tammity said, let's do it again next week. An elbow flew and the most famous fight in rugby league history, international rugby league history, Mm. and uh, they went at each other, uppercuts, and it was um, Gary Campbell, one of the players, said... uh, we were never racially abused again after that test. So Kevin Tammody drew a line in the sand mm. on increasing the the player behaviour of the Australians through an unbelievable fistic display.
0: Mm. Now, in that 1985 series, Australia take a one-nil series lead with a narrow victory in Brisbane. They then have a very lucky escape in the second test match at Carlow Park with a, a very forward pass part of their last minute try in the second test so to say the kiwis were distraught is an understatement but the third test was an incredible moment for new zealand rugby league and and would you say the possibly the biggest moment for the new zealand game up until the 2008 world cup victory
1: yeah i'd say that was the biggest because you had people like kevin tarmody and olsen that never had a win against the australians the australians had made four changes they won the second test 10-6 but they sacked four players and that caused this enormous rift, but they sacked four Queenslanders mm. and that put a huge rift in the team. Now, if you've won a game and boxing rugby league, sometimes you win games, but you don't feel good about it because you know, you didn't, you didn't do enough to win or you, you had to rub the green with the referee. And, Sometimes you don't feel good, and the Australian showed. coach called Terry Firmley, who ended up getting dropped, sacked as an Australian coach because of this, mm. he sacked four Queenslanders, which created some uncertainty. And so the Kiwis are thinking, we lost, but we forced these guys to make four changes, so they're jumping at shadows.
0: Mm.
1: So for that third test, which was the first game of the World Cup four years later, they used to have games for points, so it's, there's mm. some serious stakes on the line. And they've absolutely crushed the Aussies. And the standard of rugby league, if you go on YouTube, that test is on there, the second test in 985, and check that out. The standard mm. of rugby league, the ball movement.
0: I think um, I have seen it, yeah.
1: Uh, yeah, it's just really just a, like a little glimpse of the future. Mm. So you've got these social forces, and there's these amazingly beautiful moments when Olsen walks on for those test matches, and David Longy is waiting for in the middle, and... He shakes Olsen's hands and he says, uh, the Prime Minister says to Olsen, you know, it's my old mate from Mangere. Mm. It's like you've got Olsen and his this merry band of multicultural... And, and another factor is that there was three or four Anglos and there was Samoans and Māori, and it was this, this template for for the new New Zealand, the post-Muldoon New Zealand, the, the new Longy New Zealand, where New Zealand's identity wasn't just dominated by this Taoist, Scottish backwoodsman vibe. It was also now accommodating the new face in New Zealand where Pacific Islander, Māori and the Pakia, the white players were all together as one and the very best of New Zealand was on show. It was a huge occasion. It was watched by one in three of New Zealanders and and 50% of males from 20 to 49. Amazing. And that's why Olsen is just seared into the brains of New Zealanders of that generation as being the guy that carved up Wally Lewis. And Wally Lewis was a legend. He was the first ever Adidas International Football of the Year and no one has ever, before or after, ever, treated Wally like that and Wally says as much in the book and you know Wally really comes out of the book as a great man he goes you know he has his moments with Olsen but he really comes out as a really fantastic guy so I'm really glad those two uh you know have made peace because they didn't really get along when they were playing Olsen and Wally because they were two competitive roosters yeah and Wally Wally was you know a highly competitive guy still considered by many to be the greatest in the game couldn't believe that he'd been humbled by an Eastern Suburbs reserve grader.
0: Mm, that's right. He had two man-of-the-match performances in those first two test matches and was pivotal in that third test match as well. It really was incredible scenes, and I recommend to anyone to get onto YouTube and watch that third test match from Karl Park, 1985, because like you say, it was a massive build-up to that moment. The Kiwis felt they'd been robbed in the second test. They were nipping at Australia's heels for a couple of years, And there was a a packed out crowd, and they were ready to make their mark. Now, in preparation for the interview, I watched some of that third test, like I said, and it is incredible viewing. Carlor Park was rocking, and the scenes after the game were so emotional. The whole crowd on the field, and the victorious New Zealand team doing the harker. Tell us about Carlaw Park, because it's not there anymore, but it has a very special place in New Zealand rugby league history.
1: Olsen and I went down to Carlaw Park. There's a, a university accommodation built over the top of it now, mm. and it's quite sad. We were given a tour of Carlaw Park, where the halfway line was, where it was by a chap called Troy Hardy, who runs works for Auckland Rugby League. But he also runs a Facebook site called the Karlo Park Diehards, where all the old fans get together and reminisce and share photos. Right. And it's, the, it's the last legacy of Karlo Park. But it was an old Chinese market garden with terrible drainage, and it used to become this muddy bog. And the ground, the ground was so close to the fans, it was unbelievable. They could all hear each other. Hmm. And then the fans used to go up behind the old rickety change rooms, and they could hear the halftime speeches. And there was a couple of old stands there where the cheap seats basically were all the migrants, the Samoan and Māori and Tongan migrants that would come straight after the factory and they would cheer on their players. And it was cold, it was wet, it was windy. Teams hated playing there, but New Zealanders love it because it was a uniquely rugby league place. It brought all the tribes of New Zealand together and it was a graveyard for incoming teams, whether it's Auckland beating uh, international opposition, which they did in the famous 1977 Grand Slam where Auckland beat Australia, Great Britain and France Mm. in three weeks (laughs) but it was just uh, it was the very essence of working class rugby league and it was the one place that all the working class and Pacific and Maori communities could come and beat their chests it was something they couldn't take away and you know it fell on its sword when they sold it and basically funded the new Mount Smart Stadium but it has an incredible place in New Zealand rugby Rugby league history it's just this Grassroots, really the essence of rugby league. It was their their old Lang Park, and these places, you know, they can't survive the the modern world. But they, for three or four generations, New Zealand rugby league came together there. That's where people met their wives and friendships were formed. And it was that break away from for a lot of people it was a very oppressive society outside that ground.
0: Mm. Now, Patrick, your book is obviously titled The Big O, The Life and Times of Olson Filipina Pacific Revolution Pioneer. Obviously, there were many great players of Māori and Polynesian extraction from the 70s and 80s. Why do you think Olson deserves the central focus there? I
1: think I've come to that conclusion by the people that followed Olson all said Olsen was the man. So you've got Tony Kemp, mm-hmm. the five-eighth that came after Olson. And he said Olsen was his inspiration. You've got Daryl Williams, who was the first New Zealander to win a grand final for Manly in 1986, said Olsen was his absolute inspiration.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: The Kiwis that had come out before, particularly the Polynesian and Māori ones, were all big, tough forwards. Mm-hmm. And there was a bit of a stereotype, it's still out there today, that you know the, the spine, the brains positions, are those leadership roles still don't fall naturally to Māori and, and, and Pacific players. But Olsen killed that. He was an entertainer and he really played the way that uh, the Pacific and Maori community liked to play. He was an exuberant player and he was the first of those guys to show culture. He wore pucker shells in a famous footy card. He wore shells. That was the first player to do it. Mm -hmm. He sometimes would dress up in Pacific gear. He was really quite proud to be from that community. So the players that followed him, you know, Olsen's in all. So even Ruben Wiki, Stacey Jones, all that next generation, and Nigel Vangerman, they all consider Olsen to be the first big-time Polynesian pioneer of that era, of the new televised era. So there were some pioneers that came before Olsen, Henry Tartanar, Oscar Danielson, Eddie Heatley, the Fijian Toga brothers. But before the televised era, once they went across to play in Australia, A, they couldn't play for the Kiwis anymore. Uh, there was a rule there on international eligibility, mm. and B, there was no television back then, so nobody ever saw them play. They were just they just disappeared from the landscape. So in this televised era, when Winfield Cup and the New South Wales Rugby League games were actually beamed into New Zealand, Olsen was the first player that the Polynesians saw look like them. He thrilled people in living rooms, and from Stacey Jones, Nigel Vunaga, these guys heard about Olsen from their uncles, mm-hmm. Darrell Williams, Tony Kemp all the guys that follow all directly credit Olson as the pioneer. Mm-hmm. So he was the name. There's a funny colloquial saying that Olson's the guy the old uncles talk about at parties. <laughs> so his name has continued to linger on through the generations as the first one who played in the Polynesian style off the field. He wore what they call pucker shells, so he was really proud of his Polynesian. He would wear grass skirts, sometimes wear the lafa lafa, the Samoan lafa lafa outfit. Mm-hmm. So he was the first visibly Polynesian. He had a Polynesian name, he had the flashing style, and he, and he played that physical and skilled mix game that we, is very prevalent in the NRL today. So he's seen as the prototype, the first to come through. Mm-hmm. And he was the face of the game for a lot of the Polynesian wave that came through. They either played with him or they heard about him, that he was a legend, but they all know that he took a lot of shots for them. Mm.
0: Yeah, well, absolutely fascinating stuff. Well, that's about all we have time for, ladies and gentlemen, which is a shame because we've only really just scratched the surface of a fascinating life and some fascinating times on both sides of the Tasman. This book comes highly recommended by the Progressive Rugby League Book Club, And what better way to get yourself through the next crazy months than by ordering yourself a copy of The Big O and Getting Stuck In. So can you remind us when the book is out again, Patrick?
1: We're hoping it comes out in June and all the information will be at thebigo.kiwi. That's the website, thebigo.kiwi.
0: Thebigo.kiwi, wonderful news. So Patrick, congratulations again and thanks for joining the Progressive Rugby League podcast.
1: Thanks, Jono. had a great time.
0: Progressive rugby league. So there you have it. A humdinger of a book and the perfect addition to the PRL book club canon. And I wasn't lying at the end there when I said we'd only just scratch the surface. There's plenty more to sink your teeth into. If you're into the purely football side of things, the book chronicles some vintage Olsen performances, the double chip and chase and the third test of that 1985 New Zealand Australia series. And if you're into the social cultural history side of things, There are several wonderful little history morsels scattered throughout that give deeper context into how the world was shaping up in the 70s and 80s, including the role of rugby union in New Zealand's great social divide when the New Zealand Rugby Union invited the Springboks to tour the country in 1981, and it is a very interesting contrast to what rugby league was representing at that time. Okay, so that's a wrap. Hope you've enjoyed the show. We'll see if we can smash out a couple more of these in the next weeks and months, to, in a very small way, help us get through these crazy times. In the meantime, feel free to catch up on our previous book club episodes, All Smashing Books. In case you didn't know, we've covered the history of French Rugby League through The Forbidden Game and The Struggle and the Daring, both by Mike Rylance. We've looked at American Rugby League through No Helmets Required by Gavin Willacy. We've done an episode on the Rugby League World Cup through Andrew Marmot's Their Finest Hour. And there are episodes on James Oddie's true professional, the story of UK legend Clive Sullivan, Tony Hannon's Underdogs, 12 Months in the Life of the Batley Bulldogs, and Steve Mascord's Touchstones. Okay, that'll do. Thanks again to Patrick Skeen for joining us, and thank you for listening. Stay safe, stay in touch, and catch you soon.